Would you like to reach hundreds of thousands of athletic subscribers? <laughs> Who wouldn't? Our lot are great. They're intelligent. They have demonstrably long attention spans for all of those long reads. And that means they're almost certainly the ABC ones you're looking for. Imagine your brand front and centre on the Totally Football Show, or Talk of the Devils, or Football Clichés. You can advertise with us now. Our highly skilled and effortlessly charming commercial team are waiting to hear from you, whether you want a single ad on View From The Lane or full title sponsorship on our Women's World Cup show. We've got something for everyone. Contact partnerships at theathletic.com. That's partnerships at theathletic.com. The Athletic. So coming up today, it's all about Chelsea and their phenomenal spending in the January transfer window. Topped off as it closed with a British record deal for Enzo Fernandez. Now, we had planned to do one show wrapping up everything that happened, but given the amount of money spent, the stories created, we're going to do two pods on this. So one today and one tomorrow focused on the biggest stories surrounding all of the drama. I'm Mark Chapman. This is the Athletic Football Podcast. The window. The window is done. Enzo Fernandez to Chelsea is done. Rolls it into Fernandez, opened up his body and scores brilliantly. Right at the beginning of the transfer window, he was the priority. And it's taken, what, a month of negotiating. They are actually paying 121 million euros. So it is a British record transfer. Service FC Bayern fans. I'm Jean Cancelo. Still Jean Cancelo, allowed to carry and allowed to blast in an absolute peach. Yeah, it took a lot of people by surprise when we first reported that on The Athletic. Matt Doherty is heading to La Liga and Atletico Madrid. Wow. The Pedro Porro transfer is the on-off saga of the month and it is now at a conclusion. Pedro Porro has joined Tottenham on an initial loan deal. Hola, afición. Absolutely unbelievable scenes this transfer deadline day. Christian Eriksen will miss most of the rest of the season, will not be back until late April, early May with the ankle injury he sustained at the weekend against Reading from that terrible tackle by Andy Carroll. Not necessarily sure that you're allowed to do that, Andy Carroll. That happens in top football. Uh, it shouldn't have happened, but yeah, it did, and yeah, you have to deal with it. Manchester United close to reaching an agreement yeah. to sign Marcel Sabitzer yeah. on loan. Marcel Sabitzer took it on the chest and he hits a beauty, as only he can, and it's all turned on its head. Marcel Sabitzer. It's a forest of players. It is ridiculous, the amount of players that they've signed. I think the number now is 28. 28. It's the big deal of deadline day for Arsenal, maybe not the one that many people were anticipating. Jorginho is on his way to the Arsenal training ground. Jorginho may just have delivered the knockout blow! I'm really, really excited and happy to be here. So joining us to discuss the first slice of transfer deadline happenings, uh, and in particular Enzo Fernandez's. £105.6 million British record move to Chelsea are the Athletics football correspondent David Ornstein and our Chelsea writer Liam Toomey. Just before we get into this deal, can I, um, obviously 1st of February when we're recording this, 
Um, have Chelsea yet, Liam, put in any deals in place for the summer transfer window? Has anything happened this morning? <laughs> <laughs> well, there is Christopher and Kunku, but that was done a while ago. Um, yeah, I wouldn't put it past them. We've we, we've all been monitoring closely. <laughs> also, the other the other way that I'm thinking with all of this, I think most people think about this as well. Is I, I don't know what contract he's he's going to be signing, but I'm looking at it thinking. So, is 105.6 million? Is that easily divisible by seven, eight, nine? How 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 does that work? What length of contract is he signing? Do we know? It's eight and a half years. So right. seven and a half with an option for. And eighth, the same as the Mikhailo Madrid deal. Right. Take us through all the events then. I suppose particularly on deadline day, David, as regards this deal, because they've been looking at it since the World Cup. So why did we wait until 11 o'clock on deadline night? I'll actually take it back because, and I don't say this with great pleasure, but I received a message on Boxing Day, the 26th of December, 2022. David, David you've got to have your phone uh, off on Boxing Day, man. I mean, God, spend Christmas <laughs> with your family. Come on. Yeah. Uh, I don't say it with any great pride. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Mrs. O doesn't download the Athletic Football Podcast then. Uh, that's for the best uh, for our life. Right, back to Boxing Day. Sorry. <laughs> I received a, a voice note from a, a very good contact that I listened back to uh, this morning with a pained expression on my face because it said that Chelsea are extremely hot on Enzo Fernandez. They want to sign him as a priority in the January transfer window. They would prefer not to pay his release clause of around 120 million euros, but if it is going to take that, then they're prepared to do so. It's not going to be easy or quick but they want to make it happen. Uh, Benfica will do everything they can to keep hold of him, but Chelsea are determined to get there. I didn't manage to uh, stand that up and corroborate it with other sources at the time. What we did establish was that they were interested, but they're interested in loads of players. And within a couple of days, it had emerged elsewhere that uh, Enzo Fernandez was a key target for Chelsea in the window and the story just rumbled on from them. And they attempted to strike a deal for Enzo Fernandez while juggling a number of midfield balls and spinning various plates. They had uh, options for now, options for the summer, um, you know, included in that Moises Caicedo, Declan Rice, um, Romeo Lavia, Alexis McAllister was reported too around that time. But they really did go for Enzo Fernandez, uh, though they did meet the resistance that was predicted. And in the end, it kind of failed to come to fruition is the best way to put it. But the conversations never stopped. And no surprise, because George Mendes was involved, the uh, so-called super agent, but not an agent for the player, a broker in this situation who stood to benefit financially, but obviously professionally as well, uh, from making this deal happen. And that's why the dialogue continued in the interim period when people thought it was over. Roger Schmidt, the Benfica manager, had spoken um, quite uh, cuttingly and disparagingly about Chelsea's approach to the matter and what they had done to the player. Uh, and it seemed that it wouldn't happen in this market. But I don't think Chelsea ever gave up belief. Uh, and in recent days, the situation gathered pace once more. The uh, negotiations developed, they stepped up, uh, and by which point Chelsea were now fully focused on absolutely getting it done. There was no certainty, however. And even on deadline day, I sensed pessimism uh, from uh, people 
people very close to the situation, both in Portugal and back here in the UK. Then optimism, pessimism again, then optimism, but caveated with it being a race against time to actually get the deal done. And right through to the end, when an agreement in principle was struck, would the paperwork be completed in time for the deadline, which obviously wasn't the case in the in the situation involving Hakim Ziyech. But in the end, Chelsea managed to get to where I was told they were going to get to, but I didn't do anything about it at the <laughs> don't, start. Don't beat yourself up over it, over it David. A, it was positive. B, you know, you have a lot of transfer balls to juggle. You're all right. You're, you're allowed not to break every every single one of them. Um, did, did Chelsea, uh, Liam, need to get this done in this window, even if it took right until the, the last seconds of the deadline, because... UEFA will close the loophole over long contracts and being able to balance out a fee across your balance sheet over the length of the contract. That's the fascinating aspect of this, I think. Um, And we haven't got an explicit answer yet, but the timeline to me seems more than coincidental that we get this news that UEFA are moving to close this amortisation loophole. For, For the uninitiated, that just means that you can give a 7, 8, 10, 15 year contract, but as far as UEFA are concerned and FFP from next summer onwards, the transfer fee will only be written off over a maximum length of five years. So Chelsea couldn't repeat what they've done with Mikhail Mudrik um, and several other of the big signings they made this window. It felt to me like that maybe increased Chelsea's sense of urgency to do this deal now because I just did some basic amortization maths. Oh, this Mark. this is gonna be. I know good. this is what everyone's come for. Stand by your right. bedpost. Look, and- I did a whole podcast on this last week, financial fair play with Matt Slater. So, which was actually more interesting than I've made it sound. So, I'm all for the numbers. Bring me more figures. I mean, maybe this could become a regular feature. Amortization <laughs> maths. We'll see. But um, I found this quite interesting to satisfy my own curiosity. To pay the 121 million euro release clause now and give Enzo Fernandez an eight and a half year contract, so you can write it off over eight and a half years, that broadly equates to about 14 million euros a year. If Chelsea were to wait six months until the summer and sign an 80 million euro midfielder on a five year contract, that would come to 16 million euros a year. So it does actually work out cheaper from an accounting perspective. Um, on a yearly basis for Chelsea to do what they did with Enzo now. Now, the the flip side of that is that Enzo will be on the books for a long time. And this is the bet that Chelsea are making with with Enzo Fernandez, Mikhailo Mudrik, Benoit Badiashil, all these other players they've signed in this window. They're making bets on these players under the age of 23 that they're going to be good assets for a long time and they're not going to underperform these ultra-long contracts. And reasonable salaries is the key word that's coming through in all of these. So it's £97,000 a week for Michaela Mudrich, which if his seven and a half year contract plus an additional 12 months doesn't work out at some point, then unlike somebody who has signed on a contract worth maybe double that and can't be shifted, they would like to think it wouldn't be too hard to trade elsewhere. I suspect for Fana. Uh, the striker, Badiashil, and a number of others who have come in more recently are on very reasonable salaries. Also, those who have signed new deals, such as Rhys James, potentially uh, Mason Mount, if it comes about. Uh, Even Raheem Sterling, uh, who is on a higher salary from right at the beginning of the new owner's reign. Clauses that 
see their salaries significantly reduced if they don't qualify for the Champions League. And just to come back to one of your points from the top of the show, Mark, Chelsea's initial instalment, as I understand it, on Enzo Fernandez will be 34 million euros. And then there will be five more payments thereafter, taking it up to the 120 million euros mark over a period of years. And so that taps into what Liam's explaining about the amortisation and how Chelsea are able to afford this. And don't forget with the departure of Jorginho to Arsenal for uh, what's being described as £12 million. I heard it was £11 million with £2 million in add-ons to 13 uh, if Arsenal win the Premier League, £1 million. And if Arsenal qualify for the Champions League, another million pounds. That is far in excess of his book value. So they've done well on that financially. They didn't see a homegrown player sold, such as a Conor Gallagher in the end. So uh, they could have stood to make a huge amount of accounting uh, profit on that particular deal if they had. Hakim Ziyech, uh, at the time of recording, has not moved to Paris Saint-Germain. So there is still work to do in balancing these books, in potentially accommodating the new UEFA rules if and when they come in. But there is some method to this perceived madness and Chelsea seem quite comfortable with it. And and actually, that salary point, David, I, I think has has gone under the radar a bit, Liam, because obviously, I mean, you use the word bet and, and there is, I mean, you know, most transfers are going to be a gamble, aren't they? Because you don't know how they're going to work out. But but there is, there is a feeling that Chelsea are properly gambling here. £601 million spent on 18 players since the summer but actually well if if you look at the salaries then does that balance out to some extent maybe the feeling that this is a massive gamble it can do I, there is definitely a school of thought and i think this has been a big part of the internal conversation at chelsea that if these players don't live up to expectations they are more saleable you are able to to offload them at some point in the future to other clubs in the Premier League or maybe even other clubs in Europe because they're not on particularly the Abramovich-era wages that we saw that have been a major obstacle um, for offloading players like Christian Pulisic, Hakim Ziyech and and, and others um, in recent years. Now, the flip side to that is also that the, the financial trends in football are moving in, in a very fast way and Chelsea are actually drive, helping to drive that with their spending. So the pre, the gap between the Premier League and the rest of Europe, if you look at the spending in this window, is just chasmic. It's it's incredible. And, and we're already at a point where mainland European clubs find it very, very difficult to purchase any Premier League player. Um, so you could say that even if these players are on relatively reasonable wages by Chelsea or even Premier League standards, the options to sell them on might still be a bit more limited just because of the landscape of European football economically. David, myself and Liam a couple of weeks ago did did a a show on how Chelsea afford this and financial fair play and and so on and so forth. And I have to say during the window, when you talk to people about football, uh, who football fans, the question they say, they say whenever a Chelsea story comes up is, how on earth are they managing to do this? How are they managing to comply with all the financial fair play rules that are in football? Do you get a sense within the game, within those that work within the transfer system, there is an element of either A, how the hell, or B, what the hell are they doing? 
more what the hell mark because they all understand how it works because they are all allowed to do it themselves and some of them are to differing degrees it's not too uncommon now to see five and a half year contracts so yeah Chelsea are taking it further and you know there is a guideline I think as we've touched upon from UEFA but it is down to the national associations as things stand um, to put their own interpretation and decide whether they let longer deals go through. The hope of the new ownership, whether it comes to fruition or not, is that in time, despite this utterly jaw-dropping outlay and level of investment in terms of uh, numbers as much as quality is that they will actually run a more streamlined operation in time that sees the overall wage bill that Chelsea have being lower. Uh, Others, I think, just feel that's maybe a bit fanciful and will believe it when we see it. And so there is a lot of scepticism, cynicism. And one thing, Mark, that has definitely happened is that Chelsea have rubbed some clubs up the wrong way in terms of the way they gazumped Arsenal on the Michaelo Mudrik deal, the way that the Hakim Ziyech deal fell apart, uh, Paris Saint-Germain uh, fuming at documents not being delivered in time or in the right way and things not being done how many of these clubs are used to doing them in terms of contract lengths, as you say, in terms of transfer fees, in terms of uh, the approach. These are the new kids on the block and that is ruffling feathers for sure. Uh, that said. You know, I think it was Paul Barber, the Brighton chief executive, talking uh, on radio in the summer about how his dealings with Todd Bowley had been very pleasant. And so there will be people who see them as a bit of a breath of fresh air, but there will be others who will definitely be threatened and angry at the way in which they're operating. There were other deals that fell apart on deadline day, such as Amari Hutchinson's proposed loan move to West Brom. And there was also a young player, Liam, who was meant to be going to Hull City, Xavier Simmons. And when these things are happening, there is collateral damage. And many of the people on the receiving end of this will feel that Chelsea don't care. They're in it for themselves. And that is part of this wider narrative that is really just fascinating. We've talked about the deal. We've talked about uh, the the money and the finances involved in the club. Uh, let's talk a little bit about football. Uh, next, we'll talk about where Enzo Fernandez is going to fit in and also what on earth Graham Potter does with, <laughs> with all of these signings that have arrived at the bridge. Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. So what kind of player is Enzo Fernandez? Well, I think, you know, we can talk a bit about his style, but it is worth noting just how few games he has played at senior level. Just just 70 league games across his time at River Plate and Benfica. 
And in terms of his, his playing style at Benfica, he's often been the kind of the metronome for Benfica, sitting as a, a left-sided defensive midfielder in what was predominantly a 4-2-3-1 structure. So um, dictate the tempo of the play, you know, getting involved in build-up and the attack as well. And I guess to show his, his tendency to dictate the tempo of the game, um, no player with 900 minutes or more in the in the Portuguese Primeira Liga averages more than Fernandes' 109 passes per 90. So it shows just how much he is that one to get on the ball frequently and really get his team working. And I think in terms of his sort of creativity um, more broadly, he's often involved kind of earlier on in the, the attacking sequences that Benfica have in a, I guess, a similar way that you could think of Thiago for Liverpool or Rodri for Manchester City. He won't necessarily be the one to play the final pass, but he'll certainly be involved throughout. I guess if you think about the the styles of the the central midfield options that that Chelsea have had this season, of course the now departed Jorginho, very much a a passer, pass master, but maybe li- limited physically in terms of getting around the park. You've got Mateo Kovacic, very much a dribbler. Conor Gallagher, far more kind of energetic in his running. Then I think Fernandez sits somewhere in between all three of those in terms of style. So a real asset to be able to to be so well rounded already at such a young age and. I think the question, is he worth the money, which is obviously on everyone's lips, I think perhaps not worth quite as much as Chelsea have obviously landed him for, but they are, of course, investing in a a young, talented midfielder with European experience, with Champions League experience and international experience, as as we know from his his recent exploits in the the World Cup, the the winning World Cup where he played such a key part, especially in the final. Um, And those sorts of players don't come cheap. So... uh, if all goes to plan, then Fernandez could feasibly dominate Chelsea's midfield for the, the next eight to ten years. Mark Carey, our data analyst there, with his view on Enzo Fernandez's move to Chelsea and what he'll bring to the Blues. Do they have a variety of plans for him, Liam, both in the short and the long term? I think plan A is to play him a lot. <laughs> Given how much they've paid for him, I think he's going to be absolutely central to... Chelsea's midfield identity going forward, just as Jorginho had been ever since 2018. It's it's tempting to look at this and say that he will slot straight into what was Jorginho's role as the number six, either as a, a lone pivot at the base of a midfield three or as kind of Tuchel did in a, in a double six, depending on what system Graham Potter decides to play. But we also know that Enzo Fernandez is quite a versatile midfielder. He's he's played as a number six. He's played as a number eight. He's even played as a number 10, I think, at times earlier in his career. He's got a very well-rounded skill set. But I think what Chelsea will be looking to do is to make sure that he is absolutely central to their midfield play going forward and, and is kind of their, 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 their chief playmaker in that area of the pitch. What you would say is they've spent a lot of money on potential, wouldn't you? I mean, if you look at the basic stats, I know Mark, Mark goes goes through a lot of in-depth data analysis, but the basic stats, Liam, just 29 games for Benfica since he joined in the summer for £10 million. He only made his international debut in September. There's a lot of hope here. Absolutely. I mean, I referred to these as bets before, and this is by far the biggest bet that, that Todd Bowley and Clear Lake Capital have made. Enzo Fernandez has has risen incredibly rapidly to international prominence over the last six months. He basically has had a very good half season in Portugal for Benfica, a very impressive Champions League group stage, only got his first cap for Argentina in September, and then of course started the World Cup on the bench. So there there is 
really only a handful of games when you when you look at it against top level opposition by which to to judge him and and to to project what he can do at the next level up and and that is for for a club that is trying to model itself on the more data focused clubs that have been the benchmark of excellence really in the Premier League in Europe over the last few years it's a dangerously small sample size to be investing this amount of money in um that's the risk with fernandez the reward is also really high because the ability that he's flashed suggests that there there is a real chance he could be one of the best midfielders in the world for the next 5 to 10 years but there you, you just don't really know which of those outcomes is more likely at this point what what have you both heard about where graham potter fits in all of this because <laughs> Liam there David mentioned mentioned you know a club that puts a great store on 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 data analysis well Graham Potter his recruitment team at Brighton some of the recruitment team that Chelsea have already brought in all all put great store on data analysis and forward planning that was one of the strengths it still is a strength of Brighton so what do you hear about where where he sits in in all of these business dealings well I would ask ourselves who's mainly negotiating these transfers and contracts. And the answer I'd give you is Paul Winstanley. Where did Paul Winstanley used to work? At Brighton. With who? Graham Potter. So yes, the owners have taken a prominent role in this recruitment operation. Todd Bowley was interim sporting director. It's a title he's now said to have relinquished, but I don't think it was ever something formal. It was always something he was doing while this new recruitment operation was formulated. And I think we will hear more from the club now. The window is closed on exactly who is going to be doing what and how. Contrary to some suggestions, um, Christopher Vivell, who came in from RB Leipzig and was suddenly being credited with a lot of this recruitment work, I hear that he is more actually on the analysis and data side more strategic and it's Paul Winstanley front and centre and he will be joined by Lawrence Stewart coming in from Monaco with a very good reputation inside and outside of English football and Joe Shields on the recruitment side um, will be very heavily involved once his move from Southampton is complete maybe it already has I think Jacob Tanswell reported that on The Athletic recently and so Graham Potter is definitely in that fulcrum supported Todd Bowley although his you know, experience of Football soccer is not so um, advanced at all. But of course, Bedad Egbali, the co-owner, has been really closely involved. He's said to be a bit more au fait than Bowley with football and its mechanics. And he has been very close to Paul Winstanley on these operations. And because Winstanley is there, Graham Potter will be involved in all of these conversations. Now, to what extent, we don't know. If he is targeting these players specifically or he's endorsing them. I think at this stage, if we're to be realistic, it's probably more that he's endorsing them. I don't think players will be coming in that he says no to. But equally, I don't think he's leading the charge and um, saying, go out and get me Datro Fafana or Badiashil is the one I want. But when these options are presented and he's in constant collaboration with Paul Winstanley and crucially Kyle McCauley, who's his own recruitment specialist that he's brought with him from Brighton, I think it's impossible and inconceivable to think that Graham Potter is not heavily involved, but he's not the only voice. And that is the typical head coach role within a more continental or as we now may call it American model. I completely echo what 
what David said on Carl McCauley. I think Graham Potter trusts his opinion on players implicitly and has for years. And, and, and he is kind of the conduit, along with Win Stanley, obviously, between Potter and the main recruitment operation. We have already heard across different deals that Potter has spoken to the players before they've signed. So he is he's playing that kind of traditional head coach role in pitching the club to the player. I think Graham Potter spoke to Michaela Mudrick before a lot of people know and that Michaela Mudrick was impressed by what he heard. I also know of another player who did not end up coming to Chelsea who was spoken to by Graham Potter and he was pleasantly surprised by how good the conversation was and what Potter had to say for himself and how he came across. So don't underestimate his role. If he's been involved in bringing them all in, it's going to take time to build them into a cohesive unit though, isn't it, Liam? And I'm sure you will have done, as virtually all Chelsea fans have have done, a potential starting eleven, even for the game at Fulham on Friday night, or even for the first, and, and most definitely for the first game of, of next season. I mean, his options are frightening, but getting them to gel is going to require patience. Yeah, Simon Johnson and I do these pieces every now and then where we discuss what the team should be for a, for a certain specific game, and it feels like those pieces are getting more and more frequent with Chelsea, given the the speed of the turnover in this squad. It is going to take time. This has the look of a group of players that has been turned around and transformed at incredible speed. And I think even some of the players in the squad maybe don't quite know where they are at the moment. And you add to that that over these first four months, I think Graham Potter spent a lot of his time firefighting tactically, you know, with all the injuries that he's had, with the lack of preparation time between certainly the games leading up to the World Cup. So it's not as if they're, these new players are coming into a clearly defined Graham Potter team either or, or a system that was fully functioning. So I think they are, t- to an extent, building from scratch, albeit with extremely expensive materials. He must be under pressure as well, given that this is his, you know, this is his first big top six job and this has all been delivered to him. I, no, I think he is absolutely under pressure to win games and to improve results and, and more importantly, to improve performances and to show that kind of progress to towards the, the kind of Chelsea team that the owners want to build. But also um, somehow, somehow keep this, also somehow, Liam, keep this squad happy because there are registration rules for the Premier League and for the Champions League and there there will be players who consider themselves first-teamers who are not going to be on a list. Yeah, I might come in on that because that is arguably the bigger immediate challenge because I do think that this ownership is going to give Graham Potter at least the next transfer window and they would like to think beyond. They really are committed to him and even when things were getting tough a, a few weeks ago, they still are tough. The soundings were that actually they are more supportive of him than before they really do want him to be part of this project and you can interpret that however you want is he a manager that suits their style of ownership and recruitment um, or is he going to be as good as many of us think and hear he will be given the regard he is held in, with throughout football but when you've got Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang who uh, is experiencing a move that was very different to that which he signed up for in terms of who is in charge of the team the amount of game time he is enjoying, 
the way Chelsea are playing around him during those games, the notion that he might have gone in the January window if he hadn't already played for two clubs and had a restricted market, the expectation that with that unrestricted market, he may go in the summer. Hakim Ziyech returning from a collapsed deadline day move to Paris Saint-Germain and a number of others who might not make the Champions League and or Premier League squad and are at Cobham in and around the environment. That is a massive challenge for Graham Potter that he won't have experienced elsewhere. Liam, finally. Yeah, I think uh, that Masters in Emotional Intelligence is going to come in very, very handy for Graham Potter, isn't it? That was always going to be part of his process of growing into this job was to manage a dressing room of experienced internationals and maybe a higher level of ego um, than he's dealt with before. Although I don't, I still don't believe that this current Chelsea dressing room is particularly hard to manage it, when, when you contrast with sort of Chelsea history. But I think the, the fact that it's all changing, you could look at that two ways. In one way, he has to kind of provide the structure for these guys and the stability. But on, a, on, an, on the other hand, there isn't necessarily a stable core anymore to, to challenge a, a coach's authority. So I think that that's all part of this as well. It's going to be really interesting to see how Potter navigates the next few months because I think the owners will want to see green shoots of recovery in the in the in the matches to come and I think fans want to see it as well because it's easy to to say now that the the atmosphere has been transformed and there's a lot of excitement around all of this spending but things were quite grim for Potter with with the supporters only a few weeks ago. Uh, they haven't really connected with him yet. They haven't connected with what he's trying to do. And so I think in the remainder of the season, it's going to be a really important stretch of time for him to start to build some sort of rapport with them. Uh, we will leave it there. Uh, Liam, thank you uh, very much. Uh, David uh, will be on tomorrow's podcast as well. Uh, when we talk more about deadline day, we'll focus on uh, Arsenal and Manchester United's moves. And if you're not already a subscriber... Loads of great articles on on Data and Enzo Fernandez and record transfer signings are on the site at the moment. Uh, and the offer is £1.99 a month for the first 12 months. So just go to theathletic.com slash football pod and you'll be able to subscribe that way. We will see you tomorrow. The Athletic.